Calvinism may be quite familiar to many of you, but in case you're not familiar with that term, millennialism is basically about a thousand-year reign. The idea of millet, which is thousand, and annus, which is year, you've got a thousand years. And in Revelation 20, you've got this thousand-year reign that takes place. But with reference to millennialism, there's been three main ideas that have come to light in recent years even, and particularly throughout the ages, going all the way back to uh, even the church fathers in the second and third century. But you've got, first of all, premillennialism, which is probably something that we've all heard about before. But focus on that idea of pre. Basically what premillennialism is all about is there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ and it's going to be, it's going to, it's, Christ is going to come and then he's going to reign for a thousand years. Now that thousand year reign does not have to be a literal thousand year reign. Most of the time when we think about this, and I believe most premillennialists will say that it will be a, a literal thousand years that Christ is going to come to reign on earth. But it doesn't have to be a literal thousand years. That thousand years can be symbolic. It can be figurative of just an extended period of time. But the main focus is the reign of Christ on this earth for a certain amount of time. He will reign. With premillennialism, that's kind of the idea we have, but we have to focus on the pre-idea because in the next place, you've got post-millennialism. And now think about this post. It will be that Christ is going to come and there's going to be a, a thousand-year reign after the fact. So you've probably heard of post-game reports. Well, it's the discussion that people have after the game about all the things that went on. Well, that's kind of what the post-millennial view is all about. We won't talk about it as much because it's not very popular at all in today's circles. You won't hear about it much. And so we won't talk about that. Our main focus will be with the first one that we mentioned, premillennialism, and then the last one, which is ah millennialism. Now you take that ah there and it negates the millennial idea. And so basically, ah millennialism is, it means literally no millennium. Well, that can't be entirely accurate because obviously Revelation 20 says that there will be a thousand-year reign. Now that thousand-year reign, according to the all-millennial approach, and I'll just admit, standing up here right now, this is where we ought to fall. We ought to take this position. I believe it resonates with Scripture well, both Old Testament and New Testament. But all-millennialism basically says that the thousand years is symbolic, the reign of Christ on earth is literal, but it's not a literal reign of Christ. Christ took His throne in heaven, sat down at the right hand of God when He ascended from the earth, and He reigns as the eternal King over the church. And so how does Christ reign? He reigns through His people here on earth. And so that's basically the millennial approach. And so what I want us to do this morning is two things. First, I want us to think about these positions, this premillennial position and amillennial position. I want us to talk about why there are problems with a thousand-year literal reign. Why does that cause issues when we look at Scripture? I want us to look at several, several things that are wrong with that idea or that several problems we find with that idea. And then the last thing I want us to do is talk about why it matters. Why should we pick one position over the other? 
Uh, because some people will look at this position and say, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't make this a salvation issue. We shouldn't make this a fellowship issue. We should just believe what we want to believe because there are good arguments on both sides. And so believe what you want to believe. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm here to say that, yes, it does matter. Because everything hinges on our interpretation of this. Our interpretation of Old Testament prophecy hinges on this. Our interpretation of God's eternal plan of redemption for His people hinges on this. Our understanding of Jesus and His ministry hinges on this. Our understanding of the book of Revelation hinges on this. Our understanding of the judgment day hinges on this. Those are not things that are just... Small matters. Those are salvation matters. And so I think we need to look at this and take it seriously because a lot of, a lot of things hang in the balance. What are some problems with the premillennial position? Well, the first problem, this is the one that I see, the one that I always think about first of all, is that if premillennialism is true, if a, thousand, if a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is true, whether figurative or symbolic, then Revelation 20 is the only passage in the entire Bible to say anything about it. And for me, that's an issue. Because do I want to base everything? Do I want to base my interpretation of Jesus and His ministry? Do I want to base my understanding of salvation? Do I want to base my understanding of Old Testament prophecy? Do I want to base my understanding of this book, of the end times in general? Do I want to base all of that stuff on one passage of Scripture? And even more so than that, it's not just one passage of Scripture. It's one passage of Scripture that a few verses are taken literal... And the entire book as a whole of Revelation is surrounded by symbolic language. This passage, both inside Revelation chapter 20 and the book of Revelation as a whole, is a highly symbolic book. And so do I want to base everything on this passage and a highly symbolic passage at that? Because you've got Christ, or you've got Satan being bound. You've got him being bound by a chain. You've got him being thrown in a bottomless pit. You've got it being locked with a key. All of those things are symbolic things, but then you come to the thousand year reign and all of a sudden it becomes literal? At what grounds do we have to say that? This is the only passage in the Bible that talks about a literal reign of Christ on earth. There were times in Jesus' ministry where He was asked about an earthly kingdom. His earthly kingdom. And guess what? Jesus never elaborated on it. Jesus never confirmed any of those viewpoints. Let's look at a couple of places. Let's turn to John chapter 18 first of all. John chapter 18. This is where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And we'll begin in verse 33 and we'll see this discussion about Jesus' kingdom that happens between Pilate and Jesus. It says in verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord 
Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And so here's a place where Pilate basically asked Jesus about his kingdom. But what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't just say that, My kingdom is not something that you can understand. He said, my kingdom is not even a worldly kingdom. If it was, then I'd be sending uh, other people. They'd be fighting for me so that I would be released, so that I could take my throne and so that I I could reign over the world or reign over Jerusalem, wherever His throne was supposed to be. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the kingdom that He came to establish. It wasn't an earthly kingdom. Jesus' disciples asked Him about an earthly kingdom. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has died, He's risen from the dead, He's meeting with His disciples. Now it's going to happen. This is the time where Jesus is going to take the throne. He's going to reign over His people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be established as the greatest place on earth, once again, physically speaking. But how does Jesus answer? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What a perfect time for Jesus to explain to His disciples what the nature of His kingdom is going to be about if it was earthly. But instead, what He did is He sent them on a mission. A mission to do what? A mission to preach the gospel so that people could be a part of the church. Something completely the opposite of what a physical kingdom might look like. Why in the world wouldn't Jesus elaborate on that? Why wouldn't God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Luke here in Acts chapter 1, give us, readers 2,000 years later, a little bit more understanding about the nature of the kingdom? If the church is not the true nature of the kingdom, then we are ignorant of the fact, and this is a great point to make at this point in Scripture. But that's not what happens. Why doesn't it happen? Well, maybe the true kingdom is not supposed to be physical at all. Maybe the true king of Jesus is not supposed to be sitting on an actual throne in an actual place. Maybe that's a false understanding of what the kingdom is all about. Here's another reason why I don't like a literal reign of Christ on earth. It's because of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
He says that Jesus is going to return again, but when He returns, it's only going to be Him returning in the atmosphere. In 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll talk a lot more about this passage in a few weeks whenever we talk about the second coming, because this is perhaps the greatest discussion, the longest discussion we have about the second coming of Jesus right here in this chapter. But this is what's going to happen in verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Where do the dead in Christ and the, remain, the, the remaining ones after that, where do they meet the Lord? In the air. Christ will come again. Talk more about the significance of that here in just a little bit. But when's He, he going to come? I don't know. How's He going to come? Well, He's going to come in the clouds. But He's only going to remain in the air. He's not going to set foot on the earth again when He comes again. And so how can He reign on the earth if the Bible says when He comes again, He's only going to be in the atmosphere and He's going to call His children up to Him to give them their eternal reward. By the way, the reason Paul's writing all of this is because the Thessalonians had been taught that they had missed the second coming of Jesus. Those who are dead. They've got loved ones, parents, grandparents, friends, siblings perhaps that have died in Christ. Well, since they're dead, they miss the coming of Jesus. Paul says, oh, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, they are going to be the first ones to see Him when He comes because he's going to, they're going to rise first and He's going to call them to meet Him in the air at His coming. They will see Him first and then everybody else will come. But let's get back to the main point that I'm trying to make. Christ can't reign on earth literally if He's never going to set foot on earth again. Literally. He will only come in the air. Here's a third problem with a literal reign of Christ on earth. In order to believe it, we've got to take every single Old Testament prophecy literally And we are still waiting for the kingdom the Old Testament talked about. I'll just turn to one passage. It was read for us just a minute ago. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Begin in verse 9. Now keep in mind, this is supposed to be about a literal kingdom. Christ is going to literally reign on earth because this is a prophecy about the coming kingdom. And so keep that in mind as we read this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of His head white, uh, uh, like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousand served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. 
The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Same problem that we find in Revelation 20 we find here. We know the Ancient of Days is talking about Jesus because Micah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 talks about the Ancient Days taking on flesh, being born, being born in Bethlehem. Well, obviously Jesus fulfills all of that. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is said in Matthew chapter 1 about Jesus and His birth. And so we know that Jesus fulfilled Micah 5 and verse 2. He was the Ancient of Days that was born into the world. An eternal being that has a physical beginning. In other words, God taking on flesh and being born of a woman. And so we know who the Ancient of Days is. But the nature of the kingdom here is one like fiery flames, wheels, burning fire, stream of fire issued, came out before Him. This is apocalyptic literature. It's not to be taken literally. And so what's the nature of this kingdom? Well, it's a kingdom that when you read 13 and 14 is eternal. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 2 and verse 44 Daniel predicted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a kingdom that would come up and that would never be destroyed. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God told David about a king that was going to come after his lineage that would establish a kingdom and of his kingdom there would be no end. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, we've got a passage that says we ought to be thankful for receiving a kingdom that shall not be shaken. Let me ask you this. If the kingdom that we are to be looking forward to is still in the future and it hasn't happened yet, then why in the world would the Hebrews writer tell his people to take courage about already receiving a kingdom that should never be destroyed? It just doesn't make sense. We have to change what we read about in the Old Testament. We have to change the way we view Old Testament prophecy. They do well to look into the future to fulfill these passages, but they go too far when they look at it being a literal reign of Christ on earth. One more thing that I'll mention as far as problems. In order for us to believe in the premillennial position of a literal reign of Christ on earth, we have to believe there are two resurrections of the dead and not just one. That's a problem. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. By the way, why don't the Sadducees believe in a resurrection? Because they only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired. Their Bible didn't have Daniel chapter 12, thus they don't believe in the resurrection. But listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 12 verses 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be shall be found written in the book. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and to everlasting contempt. There's going to be one resurrection of the dead that Daniel talks about here. And in that one resurrection, some are going to go to everlasting contempt, some go to everlasting life. One resurrection where people receive their final fate or their final reward, whatever it may be. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15, or John chapter 5, excuse me. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus also here talks about another coming. Only one where people will be resurrected and they will either go to judgment or eternal damnation or they will go to everlasting life. But it all happens after one resurrection. Acts chapter 24. And I'm throwing a lot at you, I know, but... Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. Begin in verse 14 so we can get the whole thought. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. There's going to be one resurrection, A, singular, and it's going to include both the just and the unjust. Now the reason that this passage is very important is because when we further uh, look at and study the premillennial position and the two resurrections that take place, Jesus is going to come back to earth well, prior to that, there's going to be a rapture that's going to take place and Jesus is going to come back to earth in His second coming with those who were raptured. We'll talk more about that next week. And then He's going to set foot on earth and then there's going to be a resurrection. A resurrection of those who are dead in Christ. And when that takes place, Christ is going to reign on earth for a thousand years with all of these people. But after that, a thousand, after that thousand years takes place and that period is ended, whether it's literal or, or, or spiritual or figurative, then uh, Satan is going to be released from this bottomless pit and he's going to be free to go tempt the nations once again. And people are going to see their need for God and their need for hope because of the temptations that Satan rages about throughout the world. And after that, all Israel will be saved. But after Satan is released, there's going to be a resurrection of everybody else. And then everybody's going to live on earth and have another opportunity to obey Christ and have salvation. Two resurrections. The first one is only for the just. The second one is for the unjust. 
Paul said there's a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. It just doesn't fit when we read other places in Scripture. But I can't stop there. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Christ died once, we die once, and then comes judgment. Christ appears a second time, the first one was His ministry where He died on the cross. The second one is not to do anything about sin anymore because the first death took care of all of that. But when He appears the second time, it will be to come and get His people. There's just no room for another resurrection in Scripture the way that Revelation 20 is supposed to be talking about like many people say. It's just not there. So why does it matter what we believe? Because I mentioned earlier, some people will say, well, there are good arguments on both sides. Uh, it's such, there are such good arguments that it's just, let's not make it a salvation issue. Let's not make it a fellowship issue. And I just can't stand with that. Because there's a right and a wrong way to read and interpret Scripture. And if we don't do it correctly, we arrive at erroneous positions that Scripture just doesn't support. And so why do we need to know this? We need to know this because the church is not an afterthought. And that's basically what this position is saying. That what God had in mind all along was for the Messiah to come to the earth, to establish His throne in Jerusalem, to reign literally over His people, and make Him king over all nations. Everybody was going to come to Him, and it was supposed to be a literal reign the problem is his people rejected him, put him on the cross, and God decided to make this idea up of the church to buy some time until Christ could come back again and establish a literal reign like he wanted to to begin with. That's what we have to conclude if that's what we believe in this position. The issue with that... is in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was the death of Jesus something that God wanted to happen? Or was it something that the people did as opposed to God's will? Jesus died on the cross as a result of God's plan from the foundation of the world. It was not an afterthought. And that allows you and I to take heart. Because in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. In verses 8-10 through 10 it says, "...which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth." Well, that's great, preacher, but you haven't said anything about the church being in the definite plan of God. God from the beginning. Well, great. I love that you ask. Because let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. And let's look at verses 8 through 10. To me though, Paul talking about himself and his ministry to the Gentiles here. To me though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What was in God's definite plan from the foundation of the world? From eternity. It was that His wisdom was made known of the salvation that's offered through the church. My lesson for us to learn this morning, if you haven't learned anything else, I want us to get this. And this is what I want you to take away today and for the rest of your life. Take heart knowing that we are not an afterthought. We were not second place in God's mind talking about the church. It was in His plan from the very beginning. It's the way that He wanted things to be done. It was the only way that He wanted things to be done. And to look forward to anything else after this day as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, other than heaven that is, is a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible says about the kingdom about the church, and about salvation. I want to read one more thing and then the lesson will be yours. Ephesians 5, in verse 25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We don't have to wait for a literal coming of Christ, a literal kingdom here on earth where Christ reigns as our King to be saved from the devil. The church is it. It's the kingdom that God wanted established established from eternity. And if we want salvation, if we want to look forward to the day of judgment, we've got to be a part of that kingdom. Are you a part of it? The Bible teaches that in order for us to have our sins washed away, we have to be baptized for the remission of those sins. Baptized in water 
to put our faith in Jesus by being obedient to Him and His plan for redemption. When we do that, God adds us to His church and we can live as a disciple with a smile on our face knowing what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Whether I die before He comes or not, I'm going to see Christ in my eternal reward when I obey His plan for redemption. Let's not wait for another day. Let's not wait another day. Let's do what we need to do now. It may be that you've done that, but you've fallen away or been unfaithful and you haven't been living the way that you need to. Do you need to rededicate your life to God and to the kingdom that you are a part of? We can make that decision this morning too. If you need anyone to pray for you or help you in any way, please respond this morning as we stand and sing.